for the Katie Helper Show. Thanks so much for listening to us. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes. Listen to us on SoundCloud. Find us on Facebook, on Twitter. Today I speak to Juan Cole. He's the Richard P. Mitchell Collegiate Professor of History at the University of Michigan. He's the author of several books, including his latest book, which is Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. And we talk about that book and it's especially relevant to what's happening today with Ilan Omar because Juan goes through the ways that the Quran has been misrepresented but also mistranslated in a way that makes uh, Muhammad look much more violent and Islam look much more violent than it actually is. This relates to the tropes and stereotypes of the violent and barbaric Muslim which we've seen applied to Ilan Omar which have not been denounced even as she's accused of anti-Semitic tropes that she has not been engaging in, people in their condemnation of Omar are perpetuating very Islamophobic tropes. Make sure you become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where you will get bonus content, extended interviews, and extra interviews. Our upcoming bonus is a great interview with Max Blumenthal, who talks about Venezuela, where he was reporting, and also about Christian Zionists. So welcome. So excited to be talking to Juan Cole. And uh, actually, we met like I think a decade ago in person at some conference. I think it was something maybe American values-ish, which sounds kind of right-wing, but it was a liberal version of that. Maybe Van Jones-related? Yeah. yeah, there was a time in the Iraq War days especially and uh, uh, the Arab Spring that uh, I was doing a, a lot of talks at uh, think tanks in D.C. and New York, so it was probably one of those occasions. Yeah, I think yeah, it was something kind of Netroots Nation-y. Um, were you at Netroots ever? Yes. I, I went to Netroots uh, and presented in uh, 2008 uh, when Obama was running. Oh, so it was 10 years ago. Were you? Did you yeah. give us talk with the um, Waltz? Um... Yes, yes, Oh my that's gosh, right. wait, I remember. This was really controversial, of yeah, course, because it was uh, Israel. Right, well, I, I think we, there was controversy about Israel. There was also controversy about uh, Pakistan because Obama had... Uh, had said he was going to drone it. <laughs> you were critical of that? Yeah, I thought it's it's not a good idea. I said yeah. I said that uh, you know, Obama was already provoking demonstrations against himself in Pakistan. <laughs> that wasn't oh, right. a good way to start. Right. Um, were you on the panel with Walt? With uh, Mearsheimer. Mearsheimer. Right, yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. I I do remember what happened. I was actually just thinking of that. Um, I some someone got upset. Obviously. Because this was his book on the Israel lobby book, which was really that's right controversial. I have to look at. I have to see if if that was recorded online. I feel like there was a big thing that happened. So um, there's so much to talk about, and you have some great pieces on your website, which is called Informed Comment, by the way. And you have one about the irony of all the anti-hate language, um, anti-racism language that's being um, at least articulated in the United States while Israel is at peak racism. So can you tell um, listeners about what's happening 
in Israel right now? Uh, the far right wing Likud led government of Israel is up for elections. Uh, and in the run up to those elections, uh, it seems to be afraid of uh, uh, center right parties uh, outmaneuvering it. So Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu went to one of his coalition allies and uh, pressed them to accept uh, further allies from the very extreme, far, 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 far right, so far right that you'd have to call them terrorists, uh, the, the Kahana group, uh, um, which is called Jewish Power, Otzma Yehudit. So uh, this is a group that... Uh, you know, has has lineages in uh, the the thought of uh, Rabbi Meir Kahana, uh, and and was was forbidden uh, from Israeli politics in 1988 because too extreme, but now uh, Netanyahu is successfully uh, rehabilitating it, and, and this is the group out of which Baruch Goldstein came, who uh, massacred uh, 29 Palestinians at the Tomb of the Patriarchs in 1994 with a machine gun. I mean, uh, they uh, actually admire him. And I mean, th th these are people who are in favor of violence and uh, and so forth. And uh, for Netanyahu to allow them into mainstream Israeli politics, to, to, to press for them having seats in the Knesset in the Israeli parliament, is uh, uh, you know a further ratcheting of of Israeli uh, politics to uh, a, a level of right wingness that that's hard even to conceive. Right. Uh, and you know the the situation is this that there's a, a an admittedly very far left party, uh, Balad, which is you know one step away from being communists, uh, who who for whom most of the Palestinian Israelis vote. And it has Israeli supporters as well. Uh, and uh, that party is known, you know, to produce uh, what are called Arab-Israeli members of the Knesset or the parliament. And at one point, uh, you know, there were 12 uh, uh, Palestinian Israelis in, in, in parliament, and their numbers are shrinking. Uh, but um, no Israeli party of, of you know, representing Israeli Jews is willing to go into coalition with ballot. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's a little bit like, I mean, it's not an exact analogy, but it's a little bit like, uh, the, you know, no, neither the Democrats, the Republicans would be willing to ally with the congressional black caucus. Uh, and, and so, you know, there's, there's this problem and it's, it's more complicated than that because it's not just about race. It's also, this is a far left party and there's ideological issues, but nevertheless, uh, uh, you know that that 20 or or so percent uh, or more percent of Israel that is Palestinian heritage, you know they don't they don't have high posts in the government. They're not they're, there's no there's no Jewish Israeli party that really welcomes them, uh, and it's and and this is demonstrably demonstrably a problem. Uh, Bedouin is, is Israelis people of Bedouin descent about. One percent of them ever gets to college, uh, so there's this you know hierarchy of social discrimination in addition to uh, about a, a 26 formal laws that discriminate against the Palestinian Israelis, and then in addition to which, uh, Netanyahu last year engineered this uh, resolution that uh, 
Israeli in Israel belongs only to the Jewish Israelis. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what that means, but it certainly means that, that they demoted the Palestinian Israelis to second-class citizens in the law. They demoted Arabic from being an official language. And so there's this, you know, if, if this were happening, this kind of thing, and this discourse were happening in Europe, it would look like uh, Viktor Orban in, in, in Hungary or some very far right-wing, you know, resurgence of fascism in Europe, these kinds of policies. <clears throat> we, don't, we don't tend to talk about Israel in those terms, but it's very similar. It, no, it, it just it, it it literally says that sovereignty is only vested in the Jewish Israelis. So even if that's purely symbolic, it's really frightening and something that, of course, anyone would condemn in any other country. And many people would condemn it in Israel, too, but um, certainly not the Christian Zionists or the I don't even know what to say because I don't want to be called a self-loathing Jew. But let's just say the hawks, the people who um, blindly support Israel, uh, we should make them into a thing. P, B, S, I. Okay. Um, <laughs> That's, that doesn't rhyme. It doesn't rhyme. I need to think of something good. But um, that's – so, I mean, this is the type of thing that – precisely the type of thing we're not talking about when we talk about – and we need to talk about it in response to this. But, you know, when, the, when Congress is right now, they're debating, right? They're debating – or a few things that Ilan Omar said, and she ironically described exactly – what would happen? Because in her comments, which were basically ignored, um, they quoted Jonathan Chait, who kind of started this controversy, quoted one sentence. Um, she actually said in the other parts of her of the talk, in adjacent sentences, so it's not like um, Jonathan Chait had to do a lot of digging around. And the article that he cites, he links to a post um, at Jewish Insider. That, that piece itself quoted her much more fully. She said how it's almost as if no matter what we say, um, we get labeled something. And then the question of Israel isn't debated or the question of Palestinians isn't debated because we then have to defend ourselves. And so, you know, that's kind of a telling thing that our media never barely. I mean, how much coverage did that get the Netanyahu thing? Our uh, television news almost never covers Israel yeah. or the West Bank. We, we, we're never told what's going on inside Israel. Israeli actual existing politics are almost never covered. I'm not saying never, but, but it's very seldom. Or MSNBC or, or, or any of the major networks, ABC, will uh, report from inside Israel on Israeli developments. Uh, and so uh, the American public is woefully uh, uninformed. I mean, in the last the last year in 2018, was was a big turning point because not only did they make this uh, sort of move to uh, make Palestinian Israeli second class citizens, I mean, it really is as though white people in America passed you know a constitutional amendment that sovereignty is invested in white people, uh, and uh, in addition to that. They formally adopted uh, a, a rules of engagement for, for Gaza, uh, whereby they are uh, sniping and shooting down protesting civilians inside Gaza, uh, who, many of whom form no conceivable threat to the Israeli military. I mean, you're always allowed to defend yourself, right. uh, but they're just shooting down people who... 
are in a zone that they declare nobody should be in that zone, therefore they're going to shoot you. Right. And, the, 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 you know, children, women, journalists, medics, all kinds of people have been shot. Uh, a couple hundred have been killed. Right. Uh, and, and this is illegal in international law. Right. I mean, this is the definition of a war crime. You can't just shoot down people. Uh, not, not only have they been doing this now for almost a year, but there's been no absolutely no condemnation of it in the halls of the U.S. Congress. Right. It's just, yeah. So, I mean, I keep thinking about this because a lot of people are talking about the pain and the hurt that um, Jews feel um, as if we're a monolith, first of all. But a lot of people are definitely trying to speak for all Jews or or claiming to be allies. And they talk about, you know, how it hurts us to hear these, these tropes. That is, it's so, it's so, baked into the formula that we don't even realize it, which is that what about the physical pain of Palestinians, like the literal pain of getting shot in the head or shot in the stomach? It's, yeah, it's, well, yeah. you know, it's, it's not a competition. I no, mean, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. But it, you know, I, I, I'm not discounting that pain. I'm, I'm just saying that to, to, uh, to accuse uh, Ilhan Omar of anti-Semitism because she said, she said, you know, I'm being pressed to pledge allegiance to a right. foreign country or else I'm accused of being unpatriotic. Right. She wasn't she wasn't complaining about other people having dual right. allegiance. She right. was saying it was being demanded of her. Right. She wasn't invoking uh, that stereotype, that trope. No. Um, uh, and, but I, I mean, I, it's not a competition, but I actually think the way it functions is a zero sum game. Because what happens is if you silence people who are trying to raise as an issue or raise awareness of the way that Israel violates the human rights of Palestinians, if you are stifled in silence when you do that as an anti-Semite, that shut down, shuts down the discussion. And then we're not talking about that. And then we're not actually addressing that issue. And the logic, right, is that if we don't address it and we look away from it, it's not that it's a, it's a, I think we can hold pain, multiple pains in our, in our heads at the same time. But I think the way it functions really is um, weaponized. I think the pain is weaponized in a way that does make it a zero-sum game. But it shouldn't be, and it doesn't have to be. Sure. Oh, well, there isn't any doubt that uh, the, there is a faction of pro-Israel people that play this game. Yeah. That any time you, you come out in public and criticize Israeli policy, you're accused of not liking Jews. Right. And, uh, you know, all of us in the Middle East studies field have been at the receiving end of this tactic. Uh, and, uh, and sometimes, as you say, it's quite effective because it shifts the, the discussion away from uh, Palestinian rights, which right. is the actual issue, uh, to attitudes towards American Jews, which is not the issue at all. Right. Uh, and and so I, I don't disagree with you about that. How you approach these things is also important. Sure. And, um, you know, people have a right to be pro-Israel, uh, and, and people have a right to lobby for that. Right. Uh, and it's not unnatural that they do so. Uh, it's not different from what the Cuban Americans or the Armenian Americans or other ethnic groups in America do, uh, and it's uh, it's not you know insidious, uh, it, and 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 they lose, you know they don't always win. Mm. So uh, the, 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 there's a, a danger because there is a discourse about Jewish power right. uh, that's common uh, among white supremacists right. and bleeds over into you know, a lot of the American population that they control the media, 
John Stewart was so funny on this. He said, look, if, if we controlled the media, wouldn't I be able to get out of basic cable? Right. Uh, but, but there is that trope. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very, very difficult path to tread uh, to, uh, to, to criticize Israeli policy and to criticize the ways in which typically very wealthy and far right-wing uh, Jews use, you know, the, the accusation of anti-Semitism to shut down that, that discourse. Uh, on the on the one hand, but but then on the other hand, not to fall into all of these uh, uh, odious anti-Semitic tropes. Yeah, I guess I just feel like I mean it's such a double standard that I have to be honest. As a Jew, I get that much more kind of it. It makes it that much harder for me to take certain things seriously because I mean, you remember when when Schumer spoke at APAC and said that there's no peace in the Middle East because we 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 think it's our land. Because uh, we follow the Torah, they don't, but they don't follow the Torah, so that's why there's no peace there. Yes, I, I, I was. I, I think I, I commented on that. That he's wrong, right? Because they do uh, follow the, the, that. Right? They, they they recognize the Torah, right. and he said they don't. Uh, they don't believe in David, right. the prophet David. And I thought, well, gee, he doesn't know anything at all about right. Islam. David is a honored prophet in Islam, and moreover. The Quran calls it the Holy Land. It, it says right. the Jews are chosen. Uh. Uh, you know, um, uh, it, 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 whatever the problems are between Muslims and Jews, it has nothing to do with those issues that uh, Schumer tried to put his finger on. Right. And I just thought that was such a, a bigoted thing to say. And if if a Muslim had said, you know, we don't have peace in the Middle East because Jews follow the Torah or because Jews are, you know, because of Jewish religion. Um, there would have been such a pushback and such an outcry. Yeah. The other thing to say is that uh, the idea that, uh, that, that Jews have you know, a right to the West Bank, uh, which, which hardliners call uh, uh, Judea and Samaria, is, uh, you know, can be a religious belief, but it has no basis in international law. Right. Uh, and uh, so the, the idea right? that, that the... Yeah, that the, the leader of the, the of the Democratic Party in the Senate uh, is acknowledging this kind of theocratic uh, basis for policy is disturbing. Yeah. So, what is the um, what is the uh, the lobby, the Israel lobby? Because um, you said that Omar got part of it right. That there is obviously APAC is a powerful lobby, but what else is there? Because that's only one aspect of it. Right. So I don't like this term Israel lobby uh, because it's, it's too monolithic. And, you know, uh, they're, they're, I, I, I want to use the plural. They're, they're pro-Israel lobbies. lobbies yeah. and, and they're very diverse. Right. Uh, so there, there are, you know, people who want to see Israel thrive and don't want to see it destroyed. And, and that those are, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, then there are other people that really, really want to ethnically cleanse all of the Palestinians, and there is something wrong with that. Uh, and 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 all of them, you know, gather together. Uh, you know, APAC itself is not really a lobby. It it is a uh, kind of holding company or a directing uh, agency for lobbies. Mm. So what it will do is, you know, there are thousands of these uh, uh, small organizations and APAC will put out an alert to them that, you know, Congress is considering doing this or so-and-so said that. 
and then they'll generate millions of uh, phone calls and, and, and emails. Uh, they, they can also direct uh, money uh, to campaigns. Uh, uh, say so and so needs our support. He's a big. Uh, he or she is a big friend of our cause, uh, or of so and so needs our support because so and so is is an enemy of our cause. And, and there have been instances where it's alleged, at least, that APAC made a difference uh, uh, by throwing money to the opponent of somebody who was critical of Israeli policy. Uh, so uh, that's the way that it works, and it, and it's not just Jews because, uh, as you mentioned, the, the the Christian Zionists are a big part of this phenomenon, and are some of the most vociferous uh, um, writers of these e- emails or originators of phone calls or uh, you know donors uh, to the cause. Uh, so it, it it it's a very complex phenomenon because the Christian Zionists often are you know they're evangelicals who. Uh, don't really believe in the long-term prospects of Israel. They're hoping that Christ will come back and all the Jews will convert to Christianity and, and there'll be a thousand years of reign of peace and so forth. But it has nothing to do with what most Jewish supporters of Israel you know, hope for the future. Right. Uh, and, uh, but uh, the APAC, I think, quite cynically is willing to use Christian Zionism for its purposes. Right. So, right, because I guess they don't really believe it. Um, they're not worried, right? Because they don't believe, I mean, they're, don't, what is it, the rapture? Yes. That's right. So, and what, what is the, can you explain a little bit about how common that view is um, among, well, yeah, Christian Zionists? Yeah. I, yeah. You, I, I, well, I think it's the the expectation of Christ's return is not universal. You know, is 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 his uh, immediate return or, or soon return is not universal among evangelicals, but it is a strain mm-hmm. of evangelicalism, and we heard it from Mike Pompeo uh, right. on on a podium. It's a little bit scary to me that our Secretary of State. I don't know how it affects policy that he he thinks we we might all just be summoned up to God soon, uh, but. Uh, yeah, the, the 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 problematic part of it comes really in that some of these evangelical preachers are anti-Semites, right? Uh, and you know, John Hagee talked about how uh, it was the Jews' own fault that uh, that there was a Holocaust because they hadn't converted to Christianity. I don't know how you get more anti-Semitic than that, right? Uh, but but Hagee's big following, uh, you know, on uh, on, on media. Uh, uh, is such that he does direct a lot of support to APAC and to Israel. And so APAC doesn't, you know, there's been no congressional resolution condemning John Hagee for saying that, right. which is, was, was a horrible thing to say. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, tr- yeah, it, which is, I think, a reminder that it's not, if it were just about anti-Semitism, they wouldn't be working with Hagee or they wouldn't be accepting his support or money. Right, exactly. And then Netanyahu, as the prime minister of Israel, has been on this uh, uh, love tour with uh, with the new right in in, in Europe and uh, yeah. trying to get buddy buddy with uh, with uh, Orban in Hungary and with uh, the right wing government of Poland, which, however, fell through over uh, the Polish denial that they had anything to do with the Holocaust. Huh. So well, can... the, the both Hungary and and Poland, Hungary much more than Poland, uh, are, are trending uh, fairly far right and. There's been interference with the judici- judiciary and with the uh, with the press uh, and the kind of ugly 
uh, ethnic nativism, uh, which uh, has anti-Semitic overtones. So, for instance, in Hungary, Orban uh, has blamed uh, left politics or or, uh, even liberal politics on George Soros, uh, who, you know, it's, it's sort of he doesn't come out and say the Jew George Soros, but that's what he's implying. Right. That there's an international Jewish conspiracy to push Hungary, Hungarian politics to the left. Uh, and uh, in Poland, the the right-wing government uh, passed this uh, law that punishes people if they uh, openly say that Poland was complicit in the Holocaust. So the, the right-wing Poles story about it is that they were occupied by the Germans in 1939, and it was the Nazis who carried out the Holocaust in Poland without any support or help from any Poles. Mm, wow. and, and this, of course... They were out of town, or what? What did they say? Yeah, uh, um, I said they're not, they, they maintained they weren't in control, that the Nazis were right. in control, and so that's not their fault. Uh, but, you know, in, in actual fact, there were right-wing elements in Poland right. that were complicit. Uh, so... Um, you know, it, 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 passing that law w- w- was very problematic. It's law, of course, means you can be sued if you say that uh, the Polish nation was complicit in the Holocaust. Uh, the Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki said, uh, Of course, it's uh, not going to be uh, seen as uh, criminal to, to say uh, that there were Polish perpetrators as there were Jewish perpetrators, as there were Russian perpetrators. And and Netanyahu went to Poland, was trying to buddy up with these, uh, with this right-wing government, as as he has been known to do. And uh, however, he pushed back against this idea that Poles had nothing to do with the Holocaust. Wrapping up his trip to Warsaw, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told reporters that Poles collaborated with the Nazis, and I don't know anyone who was ever sued for such a statement. Uh, the statement was clarified by Israel. It became clear that some had been mistranslated and misreported, and uh, that they didn't mean to say that the whole Polish nation was complicit. Uh, even so, it angered Poland. Then came the final straw from Israel's foreign minister, Israel Katz, Poles collaborated with the Nazis, definitely. As former Prime Minister Shamir said, his father was murdered by Poles. He said that from his point of view, they sucked anti-Semitism from their mother's milk. You can't sugarcoat this history. His comments then brought an angry reaction from the Polish Prime Minister as he pulled his country out of the summit altogether. I made this decision because the statement made by Mr. Katz, the man appointed to be the Israeli Foreign Minister, is totally unacceptable, not only in diplomacy, but for me they're unacceptable anywhere in public. Poland was the nation that suffered most, along with Jews and the Roma, during World War II. And as a result, uh, the, the Poles got in a snit and they, they, they cancelled their, their, the next visit to Israel. And, uh, and, and so buddying up with, with European fascists, the hope is that they're all right-wingers together and you can make an alliance with them. Well, the idea was to bring together like-minded nations, Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic and Slovakia, because Israel feels that Western countries uh, are more critical of of Israel over the Palestinians, for instance. Also, these Central and Eastern European allies had helped block a move to condemn the Trump administration's decision to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. This is the problem with, you know, buddying up with with European fascists is that the European right is implicated in in, in this uh, 
uh, genocide that was committed against the Jews, and, and so that's always going to lurk there in the background. Critics in Israel said Netanyahu was playing with fire and was ignoring anti-Semitism and revisionism in Central and Eastern Europe. You know, the same thing is true with Marine Le Pen in, in France and the far right in France, because the, the, her party, uh, the National Front, was founded by former officers of the Petain military who were allied with, with Germany and who surrendered thousands of French Jews to the Nazis right. to be killed. So how, you, how, how uh, uh, the leader of Israel makes a, a kind of international political alliance with Marine Le Pen, I don't understand. But that's, what, that's the kind of thing that Netanyahu has been doing. And again, it passes completely without comment in right. the United States. Yeah, I was going to say, the problem isn't that these countries were complicit. The only problem is when they deny it and the optics are just too bad, right, that, that Netanyahu has to say something. Just Holocaust denial is just the optics are just too bad. Like he couldn't justify... Um, right. Doing it. So anything short of that, of Holocaust denial, <laughs> right. is okay. It's kosher, <laughs> so to speak. Um, yeah. It's funny. When I, when I met you in person, I remember saying something like about how Israel's founding, you know, how how unique it was. Not in a, I wasn't being a Jewish supremacist at all. I was probably being more critical of Jews than someone who is not Jewish. Um, but I said something about how, you know, it's it's so unique because they were founded after the Holocaust, which makes everything so hard. And you said something like, well, no, it's not really that unique. Every country is founded on, or most countries or most nations are founded on conflict and wiping out some people. Uh, it just was a question, I guess, of when. Yeah, well, I mean, that's there, there are people who argue that there's something unique about Israel because it's founded on somebody else's land. Right. I think what I said was, <laughs> which country that's, was that's it? That's been done before, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it just depends on how far you go back. Right. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, in my view, uh, Katie, there, there's nothing very unique or mm. distinctive about about Israel. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it is true that it came out of this process of British colonialism in Palestine and, and moving people around. But, you know, in modern history, lots of people have been moved around, and sometimes that has had implications for nation formation. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, 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 probably a million people were killed in 1947 when it, 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 British India split up into India and Pakistan. And uh, uh, people were displaced in very large numbers. Uh, so, you know, in, in Turkey and Greece exchanged uh, populations in the tw 1920s. Millions of people were moved around uh, quite against their will often to form these nation states. So nationalism is like that. And, and, and most of what people complain about in, in Israeli policy or Israeli history is, is complaints about nationalism. And it, it's, uh, it, it seems to me, if you know modern history, it's not so much that it's distinctive uh, as that a lot of these problems elsewhere have been resolved by now. What's distinctive about Israel and the Palestinians is that whatever happened in the past, we're still living with it. There's no resolution to it. Uh, and part of the reason there's no resolution to it, in my view, is, is, is that the Israelis decided, having conquered Gaza and, and the West Bank in 1967, to keep them and to colonize them uh, and to forestall the rise of a Palestinian state because they saw... 
a Palestinian state as inevitably having claims on Israel itself, and so much better never to give uh, those claims the status of statehood. Uh, and this, in my view, is a big mistake and, and, and actually backfires, because if the Israelis have let the Palestinians have a state after the Oslo Accords in the 90s, uh, you know, the PLO would come out and defend Israel. Uh, when it was attacked. And, and you saw some of that uh, immediately after the accords. Uh, and Israel would, 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 would gain you know, permanent legitimacy, whereas by keeping the West Bank and Gaza and making itself into a kind of colonial apartheid state of, of a kind of late 19th century sh sort, it's not that this kind of thing would, never existed, but it's just it's a timeline that what it's doing is it's making itself increasingly unpalatable to the European Union. So, you know, Ireland, uh, for, for in Irish politics, the real question is, you know, who is like the British and who is like the Irish? And the Irish are starting to think, well, the Israelis look more like the British. Uh, and uh, so then they passed this uh, law not to import uh, settler-made goods uh, from the West Bank. And I, I, this is only the beginning. You know, the longer the situation goes on, the more delegitimized de de Israel is going to become. And the, 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 the right-wing government is so worried about delegitimization, its policies are producing this. It's funny when you said Ireland was trying to figure out which one they were, you know, the British, or uh, which, which side of the, the conflict would be the Irish and which would be the British. And I feel like that kind of speaks to the, this speaks to the uniqueness um, something that maybe is unique is that, I mean, how it was founded so, it, this foundation was so based on genocide, the Holocaust, right? And so they are both the underdog and the oppressor in a way that I don't, I don't know enough about other nation states. I know that in South Africa, the Boers like try to present themselves as this persecuted or did minority. But I think that it's a weird dual role. Oh, if I said dual, so now I'm going to be called an anti-Semite or something. But it's this weird um, combination of victimhood and oppression. Because to me, it's so, I was like, of course the, the Palestinians are the Irish and the Israelis are the British. Yeah, although, as you say, in, in 1948, the Irish looked at it entirely the other way around. Right. Because it was they just... identified with the Israelis. Yeah. Um, so, because yeah, they had uh, been persecuted, they had been driven out, they had been yeah. killed. Yeah. Except the well, thing is, the Germans were doing it, not the Palestinians. I mean, I know you know that, but yes, the Palestinians, despite the attempts to Nazify the Arabs, on the whole, and by and large, uh, were the, the the Arabs were liberals and were anti-Nazi. Right. Uh, so they don't bear a responsibility for the Holocaust, and and yet it was dumped on them. Right. It, but you're right. You're absolutely right that. The, the shadow of the Holocaust is one of the things that makes this issue so difficult to talk about, because uh, when you have people like Netanyahu yeah. who uh, are constantly using uh, the, the position of the victim, but then are right. deploying it in order to oppress other people, uh, it's, it's just really hard for people to get their minds right. around. And, and uh, it's easy for Netanyahu if you attack him. Uh, to go back to playing the victim, right? Which is so sordid, and yeah, yeah, it it, it really is. And it's you know, there's this old joke that uh, the, in in New York people would have these uh, cocktail parties and they would sit around and talk, and they'd be talking politics, and somebody at some point would always say, "But is it good for the Jews?" Yeah, right. What Netanyahu is doing is bad for the Jews. 
uh, because it's undermining, for instance, the moral claims of uh, right. charges of anti-Semitism. Right. Uh, when when uh, a refugee woman like Ilhan Omar can't complain about the treatment of Palestinians without thereby being labeled an anti-Semite, then what does it really mean uh, for for the charge of anti-Semitism? It, it weakens it. Right. And uh, it also kind of begins to tag Jews as complicit in this occupation enterprise, which right. almost no American Jews want to be. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's, it, it, you know, the, the moral uh, labyrinth that uh, that is constituted by these issues that you have brought up is just really challenging, and, and it's very hard to find Ariadne's thread to get back out of it. Yeah. I mean, I think another thing that makes it unique is that unlike other countries, the U.S. points to Israel as this um, unique democracy and talks about our special uh, relationship with Israel uh, all the time. I mean, I think that both Israel and our support of Israel and Saudi Arabia are are really bad, um, but there's definitely a different discourse around it. Um, we're very overt about our, our special relationship with Israel, and we're not about Saudi Arabia. Right, right. Now, there is this uh, kind of justification to the American public of uh, wanting to be friends with Israel because it's uh, uh, the only democracy in the Middle East right. and so forth. Actually, I'd, I'd say right now, Tunisia is the only democracy in the Middle East uh, and that uh, Israel is only partly free uh, on you know Freedom House kind of uh, uh, criteria. It's very cynical. Because I, I think a lot of European and American politicians couldn't care less about Jews or Israel one way or another. Israel is, is you know, has been described as America's aircraft carrier in the Middle East. We want the oil to come out of there, uh, the natural gas, and we don't want there to be any trouble about that. And if anybody gives us trouble about that, we want to have good intelligence about it. We want to have logistical support. And that's what Israel's role is for, you know, for the Pentagon. They don't care about Zionism or non-Zionism or, or, or you know, these past issues of history. They really want uh, the U.S. Fifth Fleet to have support in the region. Uh, and, and a lot of it is, is really about oil. And, and I, you know, interestingly, I, I think oil probably has a 15 to 20-year timeline mm, because right. we're, we're, we're going to go electric. Uh, and the electric cars are going to take over much more quickly than people now imagine. And it's going to defund the Middle East, and it's going to make it much less important in geopolitics. So uh, I think uh, you know the next generation of Israeli leaders is going to have to really uh, scramble to find uh, a, a security uh, a justification for the U.S. To, to back them to the hilt in this way, uh, and to be complicit in the victimization of, of the Palestinians. Uh, because they're they're not going to be needed as an aircraft carrier probably in twenty years. So, what do you predict will happen? Well, I I, I think there will be a crisis. Uh, I, I think uh, the the West Bank looks to me like a, a civil war waiting to happen. Uh, I uh, I think the mm, uh, the you know backing that Israel has from the United States could decline uh, both on human rights grounds and on security grounds, just because it, it won't be seen as as so needed if, if, if we're not after the resources of that region. Right. Uh, and uh, I think the, the, the really big thing that's happening is that uh, younger uh, Jewish Americans uh, – yeah. 
are beginning to to question, you know, the knee-jerk support for Israel that was characteristic of their elders. Right. Uh, and uh, and th- and that's a huge crisis uh, for the for for the uh, Israel lobbies. Uh, so I, I think in the next 20 years, we're, we're going to see some real changes. And I, I think Bernie Sanders is, you know, yes. although he's, he's, he's from, not from that generation of young people, but he, he's articulating yeah. uh, some of these issues in a new way uh, that I think are, he's starting something that's going to snowball. Yeah. No, I think he's starting something. I think also, I actually remember sitting, I was at the New York City debate in, in Brooklyn at the Navy Yards. Um, I was there in person, and the guy behind me, who I was, he was not eavesdropping on, he was just kind of loud, a loud New Yorker, Jewish, um, not to cite a stereotype, he just happened to be those things. He said something like, um, I'm on the fence about Bernie and, and Hillary. And then Bernie said something critical of uh, of Netanyahu, and he was like, oh, can't support him, can't support him, because, you know, he's, that's, I think maybe he's a self-loathing Jew. And then by the end of it, though, he was back on Team Bernie, which I just think is such a telling example of how effective a communicator he is and also how he can, I mean, we've seen this happen. He'll change people's minds in real time. But I also think that Ilan Omar, I mean, I'm blown away by what she did. She got, I mean, on so many levels, but she didn't back down. I mean, she apologized before, but her apology was actually, I thought, a pretty good, brave um, she she what she didn't concede too much, and she kept calling out the lobbies, um, and just the fact that you now have Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris—they've all come out to support her um, in a way that I think, like a year ago, people would have considered to be unthinkable. It would have just been too much of a political liability. I uh, I just think she's really shifted the conversation. Well, I think she certainly has tried to shift the conversation, and it is remarkable the support that she's picked up. And, you know, I think initially Nancy Pelosi was, was going to try to do something to her. Yeah. Uh, and uh, no, and she's she had can't. to back off, right. and she ended up with this very vague resolution condemning white supremacy right. and Islamophobia and also allegations of dual loyalty. Right. Yeah, uh, and yeah. which which wasn't even what Ilhan I know said, she wasn't but, saying that yeah but but this whole thing in my view is an attempt to shut her up yeah, uh, of and, course, to yeah. de- and to delegitimize her voice yeah so uh, it, it, it they, they want to make the people who uh, uh, are hardliners on the West Bank uh, want to make it impossible for her to say something and be taken seriously yeah. Uh, and I think the fact that uh, Warren and, and Sanders and others pulled their wagons around her may blunt this attempt. Yeah. But it's also the case that, you know, she's a Somali refugee and came to the United States uh, as a child. And uh, she didn't she didn't grow up in American politics. Right. And so some of the problem here is that I think there, there are red lines that American politicians know right. not to to, to yeah. cross or or phrases that you don't you know you would go out of your way right uh, not to use and she just doesn't know about yeah. that and she's coming out of a different subculture of you know these Somali uh, immigrants in Minnesota and I know some of them and you know the idea that the Palestinians are being screwed over because the Israel lobby is very powerful in Washington is not controversial among them. Right. Uh, and uh, and and if 
it depends on how you put it, whether this is just a self-evident truth or if it's offensive. Right. Well, I think, you know, Jonathan Chait, I I don't think he acted in good faith at all because he focused on one sentence. He misrepresented what she said. He and he's the one who kind of caused this. And there's an amazing quote that I found from Henry Olson from The Washington Post. Um, He said that Ilan Omar was um, Steve was the Steve King of the left. Yes, Dana yes. Milbank said that uh, she was taking a page out of Trump's playbook. But right. what's unbelievable is actually, um, well, I have the quote here. Olson said, he ended his, his op-ed by saying, History gives House Democrats a clear example of what they must do. The famous Roman leader, Julius Caesar, divorced his wife because of accusations that she had tried to meet a lover during a female-only religious ceremony. Even though the allegations were never proved, Caesar said his wife must be beyond suspicion and sent her packing. So, too, it must be with the Democrats. If they wish to credibly maintain that they have no tolerance for bigotry in any of its forms, they must be beyond suspicion of such. They must remove Omar from all of her committees now or forever risk that bigotry will haunt them for the remainder of her time in office, which I found stunning. I mean— He's overtly saying that she should be treated like someone who may be innocent. Also, he's hearkening back to, like, you know, over two millennia ago. Um, probably women weren't treated that well then. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's. I think that the 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 smearing of her the, or the disregard for her is so unchallenged. The fact that he could write this. I thought was shocking. I mean, I know she thinks, I know people think this about her, but that, that he could actually write it. Well, yes, and he's no angel himself. Right, of course, yeah. Uh, you know, this, this some of this started with Lee Zeldin, uh, oh, who, yeah. who's a representative in, uh, from New York, uh, who's a very far right-wing Republican right. and a big uh, booster of uh, the Netanyahu government. And he's been on uh, Frank Gaffney's show, uh, Frank Gaffney is, you know, been designated as as a hate purveyor mm. uh, and, and one of America's biggest Islamophobes. Uh, and uh, so Zeldin gets away uh, with uh, taunting uh, Ilhan Omar, right. uh, but yeah. n- nobody cares that he has very unsavory connections. Right. Uh, and. Uh, I think this is why Pelosi was forced to put in a condemnation of Islamophobia right. uh, into this resolution, because some of what's being done to Ilhan Omar is because she's a veiled Muslim woman. Uh, and uh, uh, her statements about the Palestinians are being treated in a way very different uh, from the way that Bernie Sanders' statements about right. the Palestinians yeah. are treated. Well, it's amazing because yes, Lee Zeldin, the the Congress, the representative, he played a an audio recording of some anti-Semitic message that was left on his machine and asked Ilan Omar which parts of it she condemned. Yeah, as if she's persecuting Lee Zeldin. Yeah, as if she has anything to do with that, and she has to speak for all Muslims. Or I mean, I don't even know if the person was Muslim. As all anti-Semites, I mean, it's so offensive. It's so much worse. Um, than anything that that Omar did. I mean, she really didn't do anything wrong. And I also wonder, I get that there's like language that politicians know to steer clear of. But when Meghan McCain, I don't know if you saw this, she was crying on The View. Yes, yes. Like, you don't know what the dual loyalty stereotype is. Dual allegiance, loyal. Like, you don't know. 
There's no way she knows. She's not well-versed in tropes. She didn't grow up in New York. Um, I mean, my mom, actually, who's uh, not, you know, English PhD from Columbia, uh, Virginia Woolf scholar, uh, journalist, and fiction writer, she didn't know about that. I I knew about the dual allegiance um, stereotype. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's so many people. That's what's so disgusting, I think, about all the people who are attacking her is that so many of them had no idea. Um, I was, I couldn't, I started laughing when I was watching Megan McCain. It kind of hit me mid, mid, um, mid clip that. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, people paint their egos on these political movements and, uh, they become invested in them. It becomes a form of ego inflation for them. Right. Melanie McAllister, who's a great cultural historian, uh, you know, uh, wrote a, a very fine uh, book and one of, one of her essays, she suggests that, the mania for for uh, Israel uh, on the American right uh, is 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 Ramboism. Mm. Uh, you know, the United States yeah. lost the Vietnam War, oh, and then yeah. the Rambo movies, you know, uh, sort of uh, reestablished America as the victors of that war in their imaginations, and that uh, Entebbe and uh, Netanyahu's brother was involved in that, and the Israeli, you know, victories in the various wars. Uh, uh, and uh, they become the white people who actually were able to defeat the, uh, uh, the, the <clears throat> people from other races, um, right. and uh, and so they 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 Israel you know functions as Rambo did as a kind of imaginary on on which uh, American oh, uh, victory could be painted even in the face of you know these continual defeats that we have had because. Right. When's the last time we won a war? And right. uh, Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan haven't gone well, and now we're probably going to, you know, negotiate uh, a withdrawal with the Taliban from Afghanistan. And but but Israel, you know, uh, keeps on winning, uh, although Lebanon didn't really go so well for them. But but in the American imaginary, they're they're the white people out there that are still still winning against the barbarians. And and so people become on the right very invested in this uh, in, in Israel, but for all, all the wrong reasons, and nothing to do one way or another with anti-Semitism. Or it's it's ego inflation on their part. Right. Yeah. Also, I think there's a Jewish thing happening with. Um, you, do you do you know Ellie Valley? No. Have you heard of him? He has a really. He's Jewish. Um, he came from a much more conservative. Um, background and you know he's now very critical of Netanyahu he's a really great political cartoonist and he has this book called um, Diaspora Boy and Israel Man and he talks about the difference you know the, how much the Israel Man is a a, re, a response to the stereotypes about the Jewish diaspora um, and how much kind of like self-loathing there is built into some of it and the you know the intellectual Ashkenazi Jew who didn't do anything. He's not saying this is true. He's saying there's a stereotype about this, right? Who wasn't able to defend his sisters and mothers and you know uh, wife. And then there's this bronzed uh, bronzed Israelis who are muscular and work the earth and the land in a way that um, is everything that the stereotype of the Ashkenazi diaspora Jew is not. Sure. Well, it is those stereotypes that uh, muscular Zionism derived from. I mean, right. You know, if you go back to the late 19th century, 
Jews in the pale, uh, you right. know, in, no pun intended. In, in Eastern Sorry. Europe, no. were were not, were not uh, allowed to own real property. Right, right. Uh, so they, they couldn't be farmers. Right. Uh, and and that's one of the reasons that uh, they went into things like peddling. Right. Uh, and they also couldn't own a retail store, uh, so they had informal networks. Oh, I didn't know that part. Of uh, oh. sales and and. Uh, um, and distribution, which actually stood them in good stead. The ones who came to the United States were able to, to you know, use that knowledge. But uh, uh, they weren't allowed to, to be uh, bronzed farmers. Right. And so when when you had the the first few aliyahs of, of uh, Jews coming, uh, Ashkenazi Jews coming from Europe, some of them were socialists and they had to flee the czar, you know, the 1905 right. revo- revolution. And others of them just wanted to uh, form themselves as uh, a full human being because they felt like they were being denied some dimension of humanity by these laws. And, you know, people forget now uh, Marx's family converted to uh, Protestantism because he wasn't going to be allowed to go to law school otherwise. So they were just excluded from professions. And so what Israel represented to them uh, or the prospect of Israel represented to them was, uh, 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 you know, a capturing of the full humanity again in the face of all of this discrimination. Right. Uh, and uh, and that, you know, element of, of Zionism is still vital. And I think a lot of American Jews who, you know, moved to Israel. And then, you know, the, the, on top of all that, then the, the Central Europeans decided just to kill all the Jews right. and, and, and nearly succeeded. Uh, so that uh, the the argument for having uh, a refuge like right. Israel became really almost impossible to argue with. So all of those those tropes of you know have to do with masculinity, right. yeah. uh, with with victimhood, with uh, with uh, uh, transcendence, uh, are wrought up in this Israeli story. Right. I was trying to think of all these Muslim and Orientalist Orientalizing tropes that no one seems to pay attention to. That <laughs> that. People who are accusing Omar, I'm sure, are perpetuating. Oh, absolutely, sure. Well, we, well there's an egregious one, you know, uh, last week in uh, the um, West Virginia Capitol, right. uh, where uh, there was a Republican event, and someone uh, put up a poster uh, that's that uh, showed the, the the Twin Towers uh, uh, being attacked and. Uh, said you said you would never forget, right. uh, and then then showed Ilhan Omar's picture below, right. and proof that you forgot. Right. Uh, and uh, so it tried to tie her to Al Qaeda right. uh, and terrorism, and actually a fairly common segue that uh, people who uh, are pro-Palestinian are hence supporting. Uh, resistance uh, movements, some of the resistance movements have engaged in terrorism, therefore supporting Palestinians makes you a terrorist. Uh, and uh, there's this kind of, as you say, orientalizing trope of uh, of the barbarian, right. uh, of, of the poor loser, uh, and uh, all of these things are being painted on, on Ohan Omar, for sure. Uh, the fact that she insists on, on uh, veiling it, in fact, the Congress had to change its rules because they had forbidden uh, head coverings. Uh, originally, it was hats that they were worried about for men, uh, but they had changed the rules to allow her to wear her headscarf. Uh, it makes her a very visible, uh, you know, Muslim, and uh, 
And there's been enormous amounts of hatred uh, directed towards Muslim women in the United States because they're visible. And the men, often the, the bigots can't tell. Uh, but uh, uh, so she's she's certainly been uh, victimized by all of these tropes of tying her to uh, terrorism or to Islamic fundamentalism. Somebody uh, uh, who was pro-Israel, you know, tweeted out that, well, has she condemned Saudi Arabia? As uh, if, you know, she yeah. has a thing about Israel. But they they didn't understand that she's been a very vocal critic of Saudi Arabia, of its treatment of women, of its hardline form of Wahhabi Islam, because Somalis are Sufis. Uh, and uh, and indeed, Saudi Arabia has, in return, smeared her uh, as as a, a, a Muslim Brotherhood terrorist. So uh, whoever you know tweeted that out just hadn't done their homework. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and she does have this record of standing for justice across the board. Yeah, I mean, when she went after Elliot Abrams, that was incredible. It was, uh, and she was one of the few who uh, was so direct about it. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen that. Yeah, and and the fact that that happened right after another, um, you know, uh, fabricated controversy. Yeah. yeah, right, exactly. Uh, having written this book on, on Muhammad as, uh, you know, and the, the, the peace aspects of his mission, what I'm working on is is uh, early Islam, and uh, uh, it's it's an you know attempt to deal with a lot of the stereotypes about the formation of Islam uh, having come out of violence, and so that's the point of concentrating on uh, peace themes, which are actually quite prominent in the scripture of the Quran, uh, the, the the scripture that Muslims believe in, and there hasn't been much writing about. Uh, peace and Islam, even though, you know, there are pacifist Muslim movements in history, and, and even today, uh, the Sufis of uh, Senegal, for instance, uh, pacifists, and there was a uh, a whole circle of important uh, Muslim Gandists uh, who, you know, were pacifists and uh, founded uh, the Jama Milia, one of the major universities in, in, uh, in Delhi, uh, in India. So, um, there's just all of this, in my view, over-concentration on Muslims as violent. Uh, a lot of it is coming out of the fact that uh, of colonialism and, and uh, uh, North Atlantic uh, dominance of the global political scene. And because Muslims are mostly in the global south, they've been at the uh, receiving end of, of uh, this uh, Western dominance. And Islam has often been deployed as, you know, a basis for uh, opposing or uh, um, contesting uh, colonialism. And so that we have this, this strong emphasis on, you know, Muslims as a danger, a security danger. Uh, and uh, it's ironic because the West has also been very happy to use Muslims, uh, the, the, the Reagan was the one who basically formed Al-Qaeda uh, as a way of fighting the Soviet Union in, in Afghanistan. Uh, and in the Cold War, the United States promoted Islam uh, because they, they saw it as anti-communist. Uh, so these things have switched around. But I'm looking at the very early period of the, of the, the Quran and the Prophet and finding uh, a much more emphasis on peace than is usually admitted. Oh, interesting. And so, and why why did that happen? Why and how did that happen? This distortion of it, or this one well, narrative of it. 
Yeah, the, the distortion uh, is long-standing. You know, Christians never liked Islam. Uh, they saw it as uh, uh, usually they didn't see it as another religion. They saw it as a Christian heresy, uh, and they disliked Muhammad. Uh, and so he's just uh, had a lot of bad press. Right. <laughs> and uh, I, I think you know there is a tendency to contrast uh, him with Jesus. Uh, Jesus didn't lead a violent movement, uh, although Jesus did commit some violence. Uh, you know, that uh, attack on the uh, the moneylenders in the temple wasn't uh, peaceful. And oh, no. the Gospels say that Jesus sat and, and constructed the bullwhip himself uh, that he used. Uh, so uh, he wasn't exactly a pacifist either, but, but Muhammad ended up being in sword, a situation right? where uh, he had to lead some uh, battles in defense of his community, and uh, so became a general. And I think the Western Christian tradition just had difficulty uh, with the prophet who's a general, even though because uh, the Christian tradition also uh, glorified David uh, as as a prophet who was a general uh, or mm. a patriarch who was a general. And so uh, they they didn't have to go in that direction of vilifying Muhammad over this, but they did. Uh, but and and so uh, the other thing, Katie, is that the Quran, it seems to me, is really badly translated. Oh, interesting. So it gives this bad impression to people who read it. So, for instance, the prophet is arguing against these polytheists uh, uh, who are pagans, and 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 they're called in Arabic kafir. Uh, I think the word should be translated as pagan. Uh -huh. It's typically uh, translated as unbeliever, which kind uh -huh. of implies that all non-Muslims are being talked about. Right. But but they're not. They were a particular group of pagans who were actually militantly attacking the, the early Muslims. So uh, the Quran will say things like, you know, uh, uh, fight the unbelievers wherever you find them. And that's another problem, is the word fight is often Trans, mistranslated as kill. Oh. You have these verses, so you read the Quran, it says, kill the unbelievers wherever you find them. You thought, well, gee, these people are horrible. Right. But it, it actually says, fight the pagans who are attacking you wherever you encounter them. Hmm. Uh, in other words, defend yourself. Right. Uh, and um, uh, so there are a lot of these kinds of, in, in my view, translation issues that, oh, there's another verse that uh, uh, you know, in, in the Roman Empire of that time, uh, in an Arabian society, uh, you, you, uh, a weaker person would seek a mentor, a patron, and the patron would take the person on, they'd do favors for one another. Uh, and so patron-client kind of relationship was very common. Uh, and um, the word for patron is, is wali. Mm -hmm. You know, St. Augustine advised his his congregation not to take pagans as as patrons, because they might, you know, make you go to their pagan ceremonies, or they might, if if you if you became subordinate in that way to a pagan, it might affect your Christian faith. So there's this line in the Quran that says, "Don't take Jews and Christians as your patrons," mm. uh, and I think it's very much the same kind of sentiment that that Augustine was voicing. But the translators translate, "Don't take Jews and Christians as your friends." Uh, right. and, and that's just not what it means. And moreover, the Quran then goes on to say you can marry Jews and Christians. So what kind of a thing would that be, that you can't be friends with them, that you can marry them, you can have meals with them? Right. Uh, so, um, you know, in fact, the Quran is very Abrahamic, because the Jews, Christians, Muslims should all be uh, intermarrying with each other and having meals with each other and uh, um, 
exploring spirituality together. That's the ethos of the Quran, and, and it says that the righteous of them, all three, are going to, to heaven. Mm. Uh, but, uh, you know, there, uh, there are these mistranslations, and then a lot of Muslim communities have developed, like the Saudis, this very fundamentalist, hardline interpretation of the text, uh, which, uh, you know, they would say, they would interpret it the opposite of all the things I've just said. Uh, so there's a problem of extremism in the Muslim world that makes a bad impression of Islam. There's also a problem of a long tradition of Western misunderstanding and I think sometimes deliberate uh, propaganda against Islam. Mm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people link like suicide bombing with Islam. And I didn't, isn't that Tamil tigers were really... Um... Yeah. Innovators in that field. The Tamil Tigers in, in Sri Lanka pioneered suicide bombing. Yeah. And it was only later adopted by Muslim extremists. Right. Uh, so it, it came out of, uh, if you wanted to blame a religion for it, it would be Hinduism. But uh, it, it's just a technique of, you know, of, of guerrilla warfare. I thought, weren't they the ones who were doing it, like Marxists or atheists or? They, they, they were. Yeah. Uh, they, were, they were Marxists, but of, of Hindu ethnicity. I, right. Yeah. Yeah. Not that we'll blame either ones, but yeah, at least it would be more. There'd be some accuracy. Yeah, we gonna... the French says, say that the money has no smell, and the same thing is true of terrorism. It's yeah. just a tactic. Right, right. Was that intentional? The mistranslating? Do you think? Oh no! Uh, it was some of it? I think most of it is is sincere. It's just ignorant, uh, the, and and so I think we. Uh, you know, I may do one, but uh, I may turn to to trying to translate the Quran oh, wow. myself. Uh, but it, it's it's just I think there are people keep asking me what's a good translation and there just are none because incorrect I mean they're actually incorrect right. things like don't take Jews and Christians as your friends uh, because there's another verse that, that that says you know the the closest in love of uh, to Muslims are Christians yeah. uh, and you know it has a lot of philo Judaic passages which praises Jews as a, a exemplary uh, for other communities and their morals and their piety. and I mean, it's not that there has no criticisms of Jews, but those were of contemporary Jews that they were, he, you know, the, the Muslims were actually dealing with, some of whom went over to the enemies of the Muslims. But there's nothing, you know, when it was talking about Judaism in general, it's very positive. Right. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the, the individual Jews that they had to deal with were more like the Elliot Abrams of the day. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm like nothing more anti-Semitic than announcing that uh, that Elliot Abrams is Jewish. <laughs> Please don't do that, guys. Yeah, it's triggering. Yeah. Well, That's triggering. It's it, it's it's not the Jews' fault. No, no, no. I know. I'm just saying if we if we, you know, <laughs> I just think it's funny. I I and I also don't know if uh, I have no idea if Ilan Omar knew that, but she certainly wasn't going after him for that reason. I guess I'm just I'm so frustrated by the sensitivity required from people when talking about anything Jewish that's not at all required by people when they're talking about anything um, Muslim um, or, you know, anything related to Arabs or Muslims who obviously, as you know, I just want my listeners to know, I don't think, I know that they're not the same. Um, I mean, like Bill de Blasio, he condemned what Ilan Omar said uh, as being, as, as, you know, perpetuating a stereotype and this guy is someone who made a joke about cp time uh which i don't it's fine but you just have to be consistent (laughs) 
Yes. Uh, well, I, I don't think any of us really are consistent. Yeah. But, you know, I, Katie, I personally, I, I think it's fine uh, that uh, the issue of, of Jews and Judaism uh, should be approached with care because of the Holocaust. And we're living yeah. in a post-Holocaust right. era. And something really, really wicked happened. It's, it's like in, in that first Star Wars film when, when Darth Vader destroys the whole planet. Right. And, and Obi-Wan Kenobi can feel it. Well, you know, destroying a whole planet is, is, is planeticide. But destroying a third of all the Jews in the world and, and just killing them because they're Jews, this is something that happened. And it happened in right. our, life. you know, life, so, it was not yeah. my, my lifetime, but it was just a little right. bit before I was born. And we're, we're, we're just not very many decades after it happened. And, and so anything that affects stereotyping of Jews or, you know, demeans them or makes them less than full citizens or detracts from uh, their rights. Uh, right. uh, you know, I think that's a very serious thing, and I, I take it seriously. As, as, as you said, the, the, the irony that uh, they should have been uh, uh, ended up in, 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 in Palestine because of British colonial promises right. In part, and in part because they had no place else to flee the Holocaust. You know, a lot of people who went to Israel wasn't their first choice, but the United States didn't let them in. Right. There's the incident of the USS uh, St. Louis, which uh, tried to bring Jews from Le Havre in France, uh, and they actually could see the lights in oh, Miami. So, yeah, it's really awful. And they yeah. were turned back by the U.S. Coast Guard, and a third of them ended up being killed by the Nazis. Right. So, uh, you know, they, they, those who went to Israel, they just, a lot of them had no other place to go, and the, the British had made this promise. And, and, and so, you know, it, it, that they ended up uh, displacing Palestinians and having this long-term conflict with them uh, and being, you know, coming to be in the position of, uh, uh, of, of the dominant, uh, uh, you know, rival – uh, all of this is is very ironic, and it's it's very hard to talk about. But I think we 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 do have to realize that we're, as as moral people, we are talking about these issues in a post-Holocaust environment. Right. Yeah, it's true. I guess I, I mean, and I think I can probably be more glib about it. Um. Well, I'm not justifying that I can be it, but I think I probably am more. There is so much violence perpetuated against Arabs and Muslims by the United States and also by Israel. And it just, I guess, bothers me that, like you said earlier, it's not a competition, but I feel like it is wielded that way. Um, and, you know, I just... I don't I, disagree with yeah. you that, you know, there's, there's an inequity in right. our concern about right. people being mistreated or not given their full rights. And the fact that, you know, there aren't very many stateless people in the world, people who don't have citizenship in a state. Right. Uh, and one of our Supreme Court justices said that citizenship is the right to have rights. So the, the stateless don't even have right to have rights. Uh, and uh, but at least five million Palestinians are stateless. Uh, it might be six. And uh, and, and they're probably the U.N., as I understand it, estimates about 12 million stateless people in the world. So the Palestinians are the largest single people who are stateless. And, and this is a very severe human rights problem, which is being perpetuated by, by Mr. Netanyahu uh, and, and, and implicitly supported 
uh, by a lot of those Congress people who voted to condemn uh, Ilhan Omar, basically. Uh, so th- I, I agree with you. There's an inequity here, and it has to be f- addressed forthrightly. But um, but but it should. It's a universal thing, right? We 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 oppose what was done to the Jews, what continues to be done to a lot of Jews uh, in the way of of diminishing their humanity and their human rights. We also, uh, uh, for the same reason, oppose that that it, that Palestinians should be kept stateless. Right. Yeah, exactly. I actually wrote about that. Um, I wrote this piece on Bernie Sanders for Jacobin. Um, and it was about the Jewish tradition that he comes from. Yes. And how it really is one that connects, you know, he he explicitly now especially connects. Yeah, he did it in 2016 also connects the um, wiping out of his father's family to fighting uh, Islamophobia. Which is exactly, I mean, it's the tradition I come from also. So in my summer camp that is founded by secular uh, socialist Jews in the 20s, and it still exists, uh, we had Holocaust Commemoration Day, but we also had Hiroshima Day. So just an example of the ways that, you know, like you were saying, these things can be, they're not mutually exclusive. Absolutely not. Well, I think that the right, the right lesson to take away from the Holocaust is the need for universal justice and human rights. And right. the, the wrong lesson to take away from it uh, is is any kind of ethnic supremacy. Right. That was what caused it in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there were some Holocaust survivors who actually have spoken out against this. Uh, most of them died, but there was a guy in Holland. Well, the Holocaust survivors on the whole and by and large, you know, always voted for the left in Israel. Uh, the, the, they were the Ashkenazis, and right. uh, the Histadrut the, the labor union and, you know, more socialist policies were their thing. It was uh, when um, the uh, the Jews who came to Israel, the Mizrahim from the Middle East, you know, were kept down and, and kind of uh, uh, their, their political voice was downplayed until the late 1970s. They were the ones who, who swung around and supported the Likud. Uh, and uh, then when the, Rus- the Russians and Eastern Europeans came in the 1990s, they also uh, were attracted to right-wing politics. But the old uh, Ashkenazi uh, Jews, among whom uh, the Holocaust survivors were very prominent, uh, they never liked those kind of right-wing politics. For instance, in 1982, I remember there were 100,000 people on the streets of Tel Aviv uh, protesting the Likud war on, on Lebanon. Uh, and there was a very vital peace movement, uh, and it, it was killed, uh, frankly, by right. uh, by Palestinian radicalism, Hamas in particular. You know, they would do stuff like go go into a cafeteria at Hebrew University right. and kill kill kids, or blow up a pizzeria in Jerusalem yeah. or whatever. And it's it, it you could see it happen. Right. It, it it swung. It helped to swing the Israelis against the peace talks. Right. And they dwindled into insignificance in the last 20 years. Mm. But but as you say, also, that Holocaust survivor generation passed on. Right. The Ashkenazis now have become a minority, uh, uh, if you don't count the recent uh, Eastern European immigrants. Oh, right. So, yeah, they're not, too, uh, the, the, not so woke. The old Ashkenazis. So, uh, yeah, uh, uh, things have, have changed in that regard. But, but there's, you know, in Israel itself, there have been uh, huge peace movements and right. human rights movements. And, uh, you know, still uh, Beth Salem d- 
does the best studies on on uh, uh, the oppression of the Palestinians in this Israeli organization. Mm. Right. Uh, yeah. Speaking of which, what do you think of the of BDS? Well, uh, Katie, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not BDS yeah. uh, in general. That is to say, uh, it is a boycott, uh, a divestment, and sanctions of Israel. Uh, and uh, I just can't go that far. Uh, I, I I do BDS of uh, of settler yeah. uh, enterprises. Uh, you know, they produce the wine and uh, right. uh, various products on the West Bank. These, uh, these squatters and basically they're using Palestinian resources, land, water, and so forth, to make things and then sell them abroad. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's uh, wrong. I mean, I, I think it, it, international law would require us uh, to boycott them. But uh, I, I, I don't, I can't go so far as, as to uh, boycott Israel per se, mm. uh, for for many reasons. But uh, uh, partly, it's being a historian, and you know, in the early in the 30s, before the Holocaust, people forget there was this period after the Nazis came to power where it wasn't quite sure what was going to happen to the Jews. And uh, but one of the first things that happened was in in '33, is the chancellors of the universities wrote these letters to their Jewish colleagues that uh, they needn't report to work the next day. They just fired them. Mm. Uh, and Katie, I can't. I, I as a historian, I, I just can't put myself in a position where I might mm. have to boycott an Israeli colleague. Yeah, uh, it's just too creepy to me. Yeah. Uh, and, and maybe it's special pleading or, you know, but I, I, I think the right thing to do for the Palestinians is to speak out for them and to be active on, on, on behalf of their rights, their legitimate rights. And, uh, and actually, I, I, I have to tell you, I think a lot of people who do BDS uh, maybe are, are doing it privately or they're just, you know, it's affecting their shopping choices mm-hmm. or things like that. I think it would be much better if they would write an op-ed, yeah. uh, if, if they would come out in public and, and, and put pressure. Uh, and, and that's the way we're going to get some kind of a resolution is we can't cut the Israelis off. Mm. We have to engage with them. Uh, and, and, and just as, as the other side is wrong to want us to cut the Palestinians off and, and not engage with them. So I just... Um, well, you know, maybe I'm a man of the 20th century mm. still, and I, I, I just uh, in, insist on, on trying to engage both of them. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I don't really. I have the one good. I think it's not a great tactic personally, but of course, I don't think it's anti-Semitic, and of course, it shouldn't be made illegal. I mean, that's just like that also bothers me as a Jew because I hate. I meant to say this earlier, but I I don't like when the stereotype that we control stuff is, and that pe- that we are have special privileges in the discourse and in politics and the media. I hate when that's perpetuated, um, and I think it's I mean just for like out of self interest or safety, um, and and like J Street, which doesn't support BDS, but they are clearly they think it's absurd to try to make it um, criminal. But the thing that I find annoying worrisome about it is the the way it targets academics especially like you were you just brought up because i mean israeli academics aren't any more part of the state ap, uh, ideological apparatus than americans are so if they're not supposed to be i mean the, the idea is they're not on it they're not they're allowed to come to things right but they have to pay their own way that's right uh, yeah. it, it would uh, you're not uh, or 
Or like I couldn't uh, go and give a talk at Tel Aviv University if Tel Aviv University paid for right. it. Uh, and, you know, academics are not rich people right, for the yeah. most part. So, what I mean, it, it effectively ends that cooperation if, if you can't get institutional right. support. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, that's one of the reasons I'm against it is that it does bleed over it. Although the, the proponents of BDS, to be fair, uh, say that they would never want to target an individual, only institutions. Right. But individuals are embedded in institutions, yeah. and it's inevitable if you boycott an institution, you're going to boycott the individuals associated with it in right. some way or well, another. They should, I guess they, what they should do is try to pay for the person to come over if they really want that. Because yeah, it's unfair yeah. to put that on the yeah. individual. Maybe. That's right. Well, I, you know, so forth. And I want to tell you, there's very little money for funding international travel. So if you if you cut out the institutions, then it's probably just not going to happen. Uh, so I, I think that would be a diminishment. Uh, and I, uh, you know, it's funny because it's ironic, but uh, uh, I, I have had Israeli academic colleagues who were annoyed with me for not boycotting them. Yeah, that's funny, right? Like, yeah, I, that's the other thing is I apparently, because I always think of that it's hypocritical. And if that's true, then Americans, in my mind, I go back and forth, right? So I'm like, well, if that's true, then American academics should be boycotted. But to be fair, pushing back on my logic there, there is not, for better or for worse, there isn't an organized boycott or a call for boycott. Um, and if there were, maybe the people, the academics who are pro-BDS, both here and in Israel, would respect that. Um, and the other issue is that, though, apparently, yeah, exactly what you said, that apparently it is pretty popular among, I guess, left academics in Israel. Yeah, well, they, you know, they became hopeless because they saw the country ratcheting to the far right. right. Yeah. And the, the left became less and less politically salient. So they don't think there's anything else, you know, any other way right. of putting pressure on the Israeli government, but to encourage uh, uh, outsiders to boycott. Right. And um, it's not that I'm against it, or I, I, yeah. I, I'm with you. I think people have a right to do it, and right. they certainly shouldn't be uh, punished in any way. Uh, but I just, I, I personally, I, I feel that there's not enough engagement. There's yeah. not enough. I, it's yeah. like, uh, why is it so easy for people to try to silence uh, Ilhan Omar? Is because people don't speak up. Yeah. Uh, and uh, one of the good things that's come out of her being bold is, uh, is, is there has been uh, a lot of left uh, criticism, and it's very clear that Pelosi got pressure that she yeah. wasn't expecting. Yeah. Uh, so I just I wish people would just educate themselves on the real issues. Yeah. Uh, and and it's not ultimately it's it's not about the things that people are talking about it's 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 not about racism or bigotry uh it's about rights mm, and right. if if we can shift the focus yeah. to right that's kind of norm Finkelstein's then, position then everybody needs rights yeah. everybody all human beings uh you know should be accorded basic rights and 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 then we can deal with the bigotry because if you put it in the framework of rights, right. bigotry is taking away somebody's rights. Yeah. But then we can also deal with the issue of the stateless Palestinians who are being deprived of yeah. rights. Yeah, and it's less controversial discourse and more yeah. inviting to people. And I used to also think, well, how you know, it's it's bad to have an academic boycott because some of the best um, historiography on the, you know, on the ethnic cleansing. Uh, was done by Jewish historians, uh, Israeli Jewish historians. But then people say, yeah, except no one has left. They all left, uh, except for Benny <laughs> Morris, who went crazy into the right. 
Yeah, Benny, Benny was blew the whistle on the whole thing, and then he, he said, well, they didn't do enough. Exactly, which is so uh, Israeli, I have to say. Not to stereotype, but it's the, the difference between the American Jews, Jewish uh, Zionist hawks, as I call them, and the Israeli Zionist hawks is that the Israelis will say something like that. Like, yeah, there was ethnic cleansing, we should have done more. And the Jewish ones are just pretend it didn't happen, that everyone left on their own accord. Right, right, right. They... they their countries, the other Arab countries, asked them to leave. Oh, right. That's another thing. Yeah. And then that's another uh, rhetorical device is that they focus on how bad other countries are besides Israel. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's the 193 rule. You can't criticize Israel until you criticize the other 193 countries first. Right. Yeah, which is actually, I think, ridiculous because you can't invoke Israel as a country with whom we have a special relationship and then be upset when people speak about it as a unique relationship. Yeah, there are a lot of pathologies yeah. around uh, the, this, uh, this particular subject and a lot of logical fallacies, which are typical of propaganda. Uh, that's why I say we really need to zero in. We're, we're living in a world that's, that's facing increasing challenges. Right. You know, there's going to be a lot of displacement of people because of, climate, of, yeah. of climate change. And uh, we're, we're the, the the ways in which we deal with climate change are going to challenge people. There are going to be entire industries that are defunded. There could be unemployment out of it. And uh, we, we really need uh, a whole framework of, of, of human rights, uh, uh, and we need it to be expanded. And so the, the, the particular struggles of the Israelis and the Palestinians are a small thing humanity is going to face uh, in the coming century, and and you know the same frameworks that we develop to ensure people's rights uh, in the face of these obstacles and enormous challenges are frameworks that then could be deployed to to settle this conflict. Yeah. Um, and one more question: What about as a historian? Do you how? What's your response to the well? It worked in South Africa. The oh, about people. about. Well, I, again, I'm not I'm not against it, right. and I uh, and, I, and maybe it's effective. I you know I'm I'm not uh, saying it's not. Mm -hmm. I'm just I, I I can't do sure. it. Sure, yeah. It's just not. It's, it, I, I I just recoil at yeah. the idea of boycotting Israelis. Yeah, it's funny. My friend, I was saying how I thought it was it was how I thought it was kind of self defeating, and it puts out the stereotype that Israel's being picked on, and then she said. And I was like, I don't know what it's achieving, um, which Norm Finkelstein used to say. I don't know if he's updated his position like two years, a year ago. He was saying that. But then my friend said, yeah, but it's really it is getting the discussion out there, which is true. I mean, I think that the response to BDS has revealed, ironically, people have kind of outed themselves, I think, by overreacting to the BDS movement. So we see such an attempt to stifle that and silence that and um, all the freedom that they that the people are claiming um, Israelis deserve or Israel deserves. They're kind of I think they're being it, it kind of call, it, it. What's the word? I think it exposes a real hypocrisy and undermines the narrative of the open minded um, Israeli civilized Israeli enlightened Israeli or Jew um, trying to bring peace and, and democracy to heathens. Yeah, yeah, I really worry about the backlash uh, because uh, 
the Israel lobbies have promoted these laws in the states right. to deny state contracts oh, yeah. to anybody who boycotts Israel. And this, uh, in my view, I mean, I'm just a layperson. I don't know about uh, law, but that seems to me clearly unconstitutional. Yeah. And I think there is precedent in the civil rights movement uh, for boycotts being a form of speech and therefore protected by the First Amendment. Right. But uh, th- these laws sometimes are, are uh, made very broadly. So, you know, a, a, a professor who gives a talk at a university in Texas or Kansas is considered a sole proprietor uh, on, on a tax form, which is to say a form of contractor. So this, uh, these laws uh, forbidding uh, people from state contracts who uh, engage in boycott of Israel – uh, actually are uh, attacking freedom of speech. Right. They have the effect of attacking freedom right. of speech. And um, I think there's going to be a lot of people who don't care so much about Israel or Palestine one way or another who are going to end up being inconvenienced by this right. you know, creeping attack on, on civil liberties. And that could blow back on, on uh, Jews as well. Right. Well, I guess what my friend was saying, and I kind of agree with, is that in a way this overreaction is good because it, I think it delegitimizes the, the chauvinism that, um, the, 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 it delegitimizes APAC, and I think that's a good thing. That's what I mean. Because I yeah. don't think, and I think Jews have to, you know, we're more and more people, Jews are kind of distinguishing themselves, making it clear that that's not their type of Jewish identity. Yeah, so. that's right. Well, as I, I, I would argue as a historian that APAC has never represented the majority of American Jews. Right, it's true. They were uh, just more, yeah. um, they had that much less pushback, I guess. Yeah, right. right. They, well, the, the APAC is just a set of organizations that's right. very organized and has a lot of money. Right. But it's, it's, uh, it's a section of right. the American Jewish community. Um, but um, yeah, no, I, 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 I think that all of these debates are good. And, you know, I'm a... Uh, with regard, uh, I'm I'm a, a leftist in economics, but with regard to politics, I'm a classic liberal. I think, you know, our only hope is if we can talk things out. Yeah. And 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 the more talk we have, and the more points of view that are expressed, uh, and the more we get things into the uh, the, the public eye, the better it is. Right. Uh, it's, it's it's bad to hide things, and I think it's a very bad sign if if the Israeli government now seems to think that the only way to keep the allegiance of Americans for Israel is is actually to uh, attack the U.S. Constitution, right? Uh, to to rejigger, you know, yeah. what America is, right? Uh, by American uh, speech rights, I think that I mean that's a, a big sign of failure in right. my view. Yeah. Did you see that movie, The Lobby? Oh yeah. Yeah. Sure. Which, of course, it's so telling that that in itself was banned. Although that was by the Qatari government, right? Qatar. Yeah, it wasn't banned. It just wasn't released. Oh, okay. Um, and, you know what? What happened? Right, yeah. what, what happened was that uh, the Saudi government came after the Qataris. Uh, the, the, the Saudis, you know, are trying to become hegemonic. Right. Uh, and I think uh, that Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince, oh, yeah, uh, he went. Guy. You know, he 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 takes a leaf from Netanyahu. Uh, and uh, he just wants to assert himself on all of his neighbors. So he started that war on Yemen, which is horrible. You yeah. know, people are starving. And, and then, uh, but I think they decided just to 
to overthrow the Qatari royal family or to uh, to take Qatar down a notch, because Qatar, you know, has been supporting f- uh, freedom of speech and free press and uh, and uh, a wide range of political movements, and they, you know, in favor of letting the Muslim Brotherhood, for instance, play party politics, and and uh, the Saudis uh, want to control all of that, and they see it as populist and out of control. And as an absolute monarchy, they just are terrified of it. So they wanted to get rid of the Qatari uh, government. So in, in, in June of uh, 2017, they suddenly announced this boycott of, of, of Qatar. They cut it off from land routes for, for food and, and, and all that sort of thing. Mm. And uh, the Qataris had to scramble. They, they, they tried to destroy Qatar Airlines if it hadn't been for... For Iran uh, uh, being willing to do traffic, air traffic control, they would have lost their airline. And so the Qataris suddenly needed friends. And uh, they didn't want to offend virtually anybody other than the Saudis and their allies. So I think uh, they decided right. it's unwise to, uh, wow. to pick a fight at this point. Yeah. Wow. And how many languages do you speak, by the way? Well, you know, when, when uses the... Yeah, one uses languages for various purposes, but I, I've I've studied ten or eleven. Wow, which which ones? You want a list? Yeah. <laughs> Let me guess. Can I guess? Well, Let me guess. Farsi. Yes. Arabic. Yes. French. Yes. German. Uh huh. Um, Spanish. Yes. Italian. No. No. Okay. Yeah. That that was. I wasn't very confident about that. Let's see. Um. Other African languages, right? Um, Hebrew? No. Hebrew? Uh, a little bit, not very much. Oh, interesting. Yiddish? Just kidding. Um, mm-hmm. I was I was kidding about that. Uh, let's see. Uh, Pushtin, Pushtin or something? Uh, no, it's uh, no. Hindi and Urdu. Oh, right. Hindi and Urdu, right. Okay. And uh, and uh, some forms of Turkish, Ottoman Turkish, and right. Uzbek. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's, are they and hard uh, to Greek. Know? Greek. Ancient or modern? Uh, well, uh, modern, but I'm trying to work on ancient. <laughs> yeah, you got to brush it. It's hard to keep. It's hard to keep that one up. Yeah. Don't get a lot of chances to use it on the street. Um, <laughs> and Latin too. Did you study? No, I didn't oh. study oh, Latin. Oh wow! Huh, interesting. Um, cool. Are they are they hard? Uh, Arabic and um, Farsi and basically, well, I'm asking about the non-romance languages. Yeah, actually, you know, Persian or, or Farsi is is an Indo-European language, so oh. it, it's it's a little bit like Spanish, uh, uh, grammar-wise and mm. and some basic vocabulary. Uh, yeah, it's it's a it's, it's pleasant. Like uh, we, uh, you know, like you have a watch band. It's because it's closed, mm-hmm. so you would say "dara beband," close the door. Uh, Dara's door, so it's mm-hmm. the same word, oh. and then band. So you you can see you know a lot of English right. in it uh, oh, wow. once you know it. Uh, but Arabic is like Hebrew; it's a Semitic language, and uh, uh, I found it very difficult at the beginning because there's nothing to hang on to. Mm. But you know, the Semitic languages are beautiful in the sense they're almost mathematical because mm. they have the three-letter roots, and then you put them in various forms or uh, molds. Uh, to make to make particular words, so uh, like uh, DRS uh, uh, is to study, uh, and uh, in in Hebrew it's the same, but with uh, sheen instead of uh, s, 
And uh, but then madrasa is a school, uh-huh. uh, or mudaras is a teachers. So after a while, once you really get good at the, at the grammar and the morphology, uh, you you get some help from that. But, right. but the, there are no cognates. You know, the, the words don't look like anything that you know. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. Except for uh, if you speak Spanish, well, algebra, alcohol. Yeah. Right. Oh well, there are English words in, in uh, I mean, there are Arabic words in English. Uh, a lot of them, people don't know, like sequin and uh, oh. tariff. Huh. Oh yeah. And, that uh, makes, yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So the, the, uh, I once thought I might do a dictionary of uh, Arabic words in English. Yeah, you should do have that. Have it illustrated. It would just just to make the point, you know, yeah. that we we have some commonality. Yeah, you should do that. I'll introduce you to uh, <laughs> to Eli uh, yeah. Valley. Uh, Ellie Valley, sorry. You have a lot of works cut out for you. You've, uh, the Quran, the uh, this uh, vocabulary book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, um, I, I uh, yeah, I've got always got a lot of projects going yeah. on. I'm uh, your website. Ho- hope, hoping to write something about the history of Islam in America. Oh wow! Uh, and uh, uh, I'll go on, you know, writing about uh, about Islamics of various sorts. Yeah. And, and Muhammad, um, the peacenik. Yes. That's yes, the, yeah. the the two little known uh, the peacenik. Right. And didn't do you get into trouble? Am I about something academically? It, it's not a getting get into trouble. So years ago, like in uh, two thousand five, uh, uh, there there was a um, press at uh, at at Yale University to internationalize. So uh, some colleagues of mine came to me and said, look, do you mind us looking at you for a post? And I thought, well, what could be the harm? Uh, So they had me come out and give a talk. And, you know, academics, I've compared them to baseball players as other teams are always looking at them and wondering whether they should, you know, try to hire them away and so forth. Uh, So that's, there's nothing unusual about this. And uh, so Yale said they wanted to look at me. I came out and gave a talk. It wasn't that I wanted to go to Yale or anything. It was, you know, why would you turn that down, uh, the, the, uh, the possibility? So um, uh, then uh, uh, the, the, the right-wing Internet found out about this, and they just started this big campaign. And, of course, since my blog had treated – well, the big thing was that I was against the Iraq War. And I guess, uh, you know, Yale – and the Yale faculty are just like you and me. A lot of them are, are on the left, and uh, they're they're on the whole great people. But uh, the Yale administration has a long history of being involved, you know, with the Bushes and the Bass oh, right, brothers, course, and yeah. and so I think the administration got spooked that uh, you know I had called the Iraq War a form of neocolonialism, and and. And so ultimately, the president of the university shut down that search and mm. just said, Cole can't come here, which is very weird from my point of view. I've, I've always been at the University of Michigan, and I was trained at UCLA, so I'm at state universities where I, I don't think the president would dare yeah. intervene in a hiring process. Would, the faculty would revolt over yeah. it. Uh, but I guess in the Ivy League, this wow. is common. Uh, so... Um, and you know my opposition to the Iraq War, I think, was the big thing. But yeah. there was also echoes in the in the right internet of of my having uh, championed the Palestinians' uh, rights, and and of course that's then uh, you know uh, configured as anti-Semitism right. and so forth. So there there was 
uh, that kind of buzz around it as well. But my own subjective impression was that it was about it was about the American power elite and and the Iraq War mainly, mm-hmm. uh, and the other the other stuff also piled on. Uh, but uh, yeah, um, it, not too much should be made of it because yeah. I have a job and uh, right. uh, and uh, who knows whether I would have accepted an offer if made and. And by the way, both departments that I was uh, uh, considered for, uh, the departments voted tenure to me. So um, oh. uh, it's not like I was intellectually slammed right, or right, anything. Right. Right. It was just politics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, why do you think Bernie is so beloved by um, um, Arab Americans? Well, Arab Americans, you know, are a very diverse group yeah. of people, uh, and about half of them voted Republican until the Iraq War. Ah, uh, interesting, right? That changed it, yeah. And and then they they all switched around, uh, or not all of them, but a very large proportion of them switched around to the Democratic Party, and um, I, I think. Uh, uh, they're they're enthusiastic for uh, for Bernie because uh, he cares about social justice yeah. issues and uh, and the Arab Americans you know a lot of them are are, are uh, from immigrant families from Lebanon or Egypt or, 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 or Syria or places like that so they're a lot like the Jews in yeah. that regard and I, I so I just I, th- yeah. I think that this, their their life experience uh, makes them. Uh, interested in somebody who's who who wants to um, wants to configure America to allow people to succeed, and you know he's up against Trump, who's born with a silver spoon in right. his mouth and uh, uh, gained fame by firing people right. and uh, uh, on television, and uh, who uh, is gutting regulations. And I mean, I, I by the way, I think most Arab Americans are not interest in socialism they're yeah. they, they they're what the marxists would call petty bourgeois mm-hmm. you know they're interested in starting a little company or have a shop or restaurant or something but i do think that that sector of america which is uh pro-capitalist uh but uh, on the smaller end of things is increasingly facing all kinds of yeah. challenges and is understanding that uh you know the 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 corporate right. uh, world which is you know, when I was a graduate student, Katie, this is back in the in the late seventies and early eighties. Uh, a half of the United States economy was in the hands of corporations. Mm. It's seventy five percent now. That's so, so scary. You know, half those, was a low number, yeah. A low those, those, I mean. Yeah, those those yeah. Now it's not true anymore. And and by the way, most of the innovation comes from the the non corporate side. Right. I think. So those people who are small business people, I think, are are, are really in uh, in trouble, and so I, I don't think they want socialism, but they, I think they do want, you know, forms of regulation and right. antitrust and and that sort of thing. Yeah. So that, that's one of his appeals to them. Right. But also, he's uh, he's just very forthright, and, and again, he 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 talks about people's rights, right? And and uh, that's a universal language. Yeah. Uh, and most of our politicians don't don't talk about mm, rights. They, that's true. they talk about duties right. or they talk about identity politics right. so some people's rights versus yeah yeah uh, but but uh, bernie talks about rights and i and i really think you know he he is a visionary and uh, an almost a prophetic figure in the sense that 
our rights are widely under attack yeah. uh, and are in real danger. And he's he's the one who's putting his finger on that publicly and leading us towards uh, more rights rather than less. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, big, I'm a big Bernie bro, so definitely I'm happy. And they're really trying to make him look like this uh, white, you know, su- supported by a, a monolith of white men. And the numbers just keep contradicting that. It's amazing. You'd never know that because the, the media coverage, I mean, at the New York Times, they keep claiming it. Yes. Well, they, they have blinders of various sorts. Some of them are big corporations themselves. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I don't know if you saw this, but there was a, a, a report of a poll that showed that uh, Bernie, Bernie has twice as much support among African-Americans as Kamala, Kamala Harris, Harris does. Yeah. 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 And the people yeah. freaked out. And then they, well, there are a couple t- uh, tricks that they use. They go after the, the place that wrote the report. So The Intercept um, reported on it. Um, although I don't think they didn't do the poll, but they reported on it um, as if that delegitimizes it or they'll make excuses like, oh, it's so early. Meanwhile, they'll cite their own polls if they support their narrative. Um, yes. Well, I would just remind them that The Intercept was founded by Pierre Omidyar, who's a, a eBay billionaire and not a radical. Oh, yeah, it's true. That is true. Yeah. Um, well, great. Yeah, this was thanks so much for talking to me for so long. Um, oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much, Katie. It's been a wonderful conversation. Yeah, and I will, I will write, I will write something for you guys. I'll pitch you something. No, I, I, you know, that would be a, a really great honor. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That's so nice. Are you guys listicle opposed? No. Okay. Uh, in fact, I have. Oh a yeah, sinking, you've done listicles. Have I you? have a sinking suspicion that I might have invented the listicle. Really? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Because I was a big David Letterman fan. Oh, top ten. And right. he used to do the top ten. Right. So. I, it, early on in blogging, because yeah. I started right, in 2002, you were a real right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm an old dinosaur blogger. So uh, I I used to do some top ten lists, uh, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if those whippersnappers at BuzzFeed got it for me. Yeah. Wow. Maybe I could do a top ten list of your top ten lists. <laughs> that would be great. Very meta. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Okay. You take care. Make sure you follow Juan, J-R-I Cole, that's J-R-I-C-O-L-E. You can follow me on Twitter at KT Helps, that's letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S. You can follow my co-host Gabe Pacheco at Gabe underscore Pacheco. Also make sure that you get his new comedy album called Risky Behavior, which you can find on iTunes. Make sure you become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where you will get bonus content, extended interviews, and extra interviews. Our upcoming bonus is a great interview with Max Blumenthal, who talks about Venezuela, where he was reporting, and also about Christian Zionists. Also, check out my recent articles. I have one at Jacobin on Bernie Sanders' secular Jewish tradition. I also have one at FAIR, which is at FAIR.org, about Ilhan Omar and how she basically has been vindicated by her critics who did exactly what she says they do. Juan Cole. He's the editor-in-chief of Informed Comment, which can be found at juancole.com, which is a news website that sheds light on how war, climate change, and globalization are shaping our world. And it publishes articles that 
provide deep geopolitical analysis that's readable for general audience. And, unlike most foreign policy-oriented publications, its editorial line isn't dictated by beltway think tanks or corporate boards. Juan has been a regular guest on PBS's Lear News Hour and has also appeared on ABC Nightly News, Nightline, The Today Show, Anderson Cooper 360, Democracy Now!, and others. His writing appears in places like The Washington Post, Le Monde Diplomatique, The Guardian, The San Jose Mercury News, San Francisco Chronicle, The Boston Review, The Nation, The Daily Star, and Tacoon Magazine. He's even been on the uh, Rachel Maddow show and the Colbert Report. I'm sure this was a free Russiagate Rachel Maddow, so we're okay with that. He's been a frequent guest on NPR. The Katie Halper Show is edited by Ted Reedy. The music is by the band Cordova. The Katie Halper Show is produced by Joshua Bregman. 